uh, church planting and home missions. And so that was the time that I'd heard about missionaries, but I never thought I was a missionary. No one ever told me that if you are a believer, you are a missionary. No one ever said that to me. So I always thought it was like someone who lived overseas and didn't wear shoes and ate the weird food and wore the garments and all that. And that's what I thought. But no one ever taught me that that's what it was. And so that, that was the church that I grew up in. And what happened was, I don't think we really got the message if we didn't, if we didn't see ourselves as missionaries. So the other church I've seen, the other extreme that I've seen, and I've also been in a church like this as well, and this is the other extreme, where it's all about the mission, and it's not about the message. So what you end up having is, uh, we're going to water down the gospel, we're going to water down the truth of scripture, just so we can serve, just so we can go out and we're going to build the wells, and we're going to go help people over, we're going to go feed uh, the homeless shelter, and there was really no focus on real content of the gospel. So what would happen is, you end up spinning your wheels and wasting your time, and you're going out and you're doing things, but no hearts are being transformed. So you have these really you have this really interesting tension because one is all about the message but doesn't get the mission and one is all about the mission and it doesn't get the message. And so both are really a complete waste of time if we're not focused on both. Because I think if we really get the message, then we will be about the mission because we know that everything is about the proclamation of the gospel. It's about us going out and showing love to the community and that hearts will be changed by the content and the truth of the gospel message. And so we're going to see and learn how to get this right mix between the two. You guys made a huge mistake. You didn't put my timer up. So who knows how long we're going to go. All right. I'm just saying. <laughs> Let's just say if it's like 45, you know, wave it. I'm just, or an hour. You guys got an hour? All right. Luke 4 is where we'll be this morning. We're going to look at Jesus' life, and he's going to show us how to have the right mix between the two. All right, Luke 4. We find Jesus. He's preaching his heart out. Uh, Jesus, by the way, is the best preacher ever. Um, he's coming back to his hometown. He's preaching uh, his first really sermon recorded in Scripture that we know of. And hearts are being changed. People are getting very offended, by the way, at Jesus' teaching. And so what we find here is you have the content of his message, and it's that the gospel is not just for the religious people, but it's for the hurt and the broken. And he even clarifies this, and this is what Pastor Scott talked about in chapter 4. And I'll look at, we'll just grab uh, verse uh, 18 through 19. Look at the second part of 18 in chapter 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind and to set uh, at liberty uh, to those who are oppressed to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. And so what we're going to see here is Jesus actually do what he said he was going to do. We're going to see him unpack what he's going to do. So let's look in verse 38. This is the passage where we're at this morning. 38 through 39. It says this. 
And he arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever. And it left her and immediately she rose and and began to serve them. So so what happened here? Uh, What we see here, let me just kind of unpack what's going on. Because Jesus walks into a room and through his word, this woman is healed. And this is Luke recording this. Luke is a doctor recording how this person is being healed. And he's not saying, and she, he applied this type of medicine or he did this type of technique. He walks in and rebukes the illness, and then she's healed. And so you're going to see throughout Scripture the power of God's Word. You have in Genesis chapter 1, how was the world formed? By God's what? His Word. His Word. And then you see throughout Scripture that His Word, you have God's Word spoke to these prophets. God's Word spoke to this group of people, to this nation. And you're going to see consistently the power of God's Word, that it moves people and it it creates things into being. And then you're going to see, even in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, it says that in the beginning was the what? Word. And the Word was what? God. And the Word was with God. And it was always there. And then you even see further on in John chapter 1, uh, 1 through 18, it sa- or 1, 18, it says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you have throughout Scripture this powerful word that people would fall and tremble or that could create, that would allow things to move. And then you have John chapter 1 says it became flesh and it dwelt among us. Who's that? Jesus. Good. Jesus Christ is the word of God. The physical word of God. Of God sent in human history in the form of a man. And Jesus Christ here, he is the living word. And he goes into Peter's house or Peter's mother-in-law's house. And he speaks and she's healed by his own word. I find it very interesting too. This is a little side note. Um, Historically, Catholics have proclaimed that Simon, or Peter, um, he was the first pope. That's what they say. And they also hold to the rule of celibacy, that uh, popes cannot be married. It's very interesting, then. It seems like he's got a, a mother-in-law. I'm just saying. Like, how do you get a mother-in-law? You get married, right? So he's got a wife. We don't know her. We don't, but he's also got a mother-in-law, and she's sick. And Jesus comes, and he speaks his word, and she is healed. So um, we have this, and this creates a, a really big stir here in this culture. And then what you have are people coming to Jesus wanting to be healed. Look at verse 40. It says this. Now when the sun was setting, all who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and they laid his hands on on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So let me explain 
what's happened here. Um, in, in this culture, if you, uh, there was a tension here. If someone was sick, people would always wonder, um, who sinned? It was a very interesting theology that was built up around this. So if you were sick, people would say, you must have sinned. You must have done something wrong to make God, God is angry at you and he's giving you this disease. Or they would say, what did your parents do? So if you, if you were, had any kind of birth defect, they would say, oh, the person's parents, they must have sinned. They, didn't, they must have been slack in their ties, right? And so God's punished them. He gave them a, a diseased child. And so this is this kind of mindset that people had. And even, let me just show you something in John. Uh, flip over to John 9. Let me just show you what happens here. Jesus confronts this very same thing in John 9. Um, 9, we're going to jump down to, ver, or start in verse 1 of 9. This is why I need a marker. Okay, John 9. It says this, And he passed by, and he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, whose sin, this man or his parents, that he may be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is this day, while night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made it with mud with saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And then he went and he washed and he came back seeing. So what's happening here? This guy was born Without, he was, he's not been ever to see since he was born. His, and people wondered, okay, was this his parents' fault? Who's, whose fault was this? And then you see Jesus heals this guy. And let me, let me just show you what happens afterwards. Everybody freaks out. All of the religious people in John chapter 9, they cannot handle this miracle. First of all, he, Jesus did this miracle on the Sabbath. So everybody's like, oh, he did a work on the Sabbath. He, he's, got, he, he's a sinner He's a sinner, so a sinner can't do this kind of miracle, so what do we do? And so then you have later on this guy saying, no, 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 I don't care if he's a sinner or not. I can see. I was blind, but now I can see, right? And and then it goes further. it's, It's really, this is the problem that the religious Pharisees had really about this guy's healing. It wasn't so much that he did it on the Sabbath, but it was the very fact of the type of person this guy was that was healed. Because if you had any type of sickness, they would, they, like I said, they would blame it on you or their parents. And you were put into a separate class by the religious elite of a sinner. They would call these people that sinner. Now, we're all sinners. We, we totally see that in Scripture. But they would put these people in a separate class of these are the sinners. We don't associate with these people. We don't talk to these people. We don't eat with these people. They are the sinners. They are the outcasts. We have nothing to do with these people. All right? So this is who Jesus is healing these sinners and he's doing exactly what he said he would do in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, that he was going to give sight to the blind. He's going to go to those who are sick, which is all of us, right? And the religious, arrogant, prideful people, they couldn't handle it because they thought there was something within them that wasn't. 
It's very interesting as well that Jesus here is demonstrating in his own healing the power of the gospel. What Jake talked about last week when he heals uh, the, the man who is demon-possessed, there is a, there's a word that continues to pop up, and it's unclean. In verse 32 of chapter 4, it says unclean demon. In verse 36, unclean spirits. What do you think he's doing there when he emphasizes this word? Do you think there is a version of a clean demon? Right? Oh, you're demon-possessed? Don't worry, it's a clean one. You're going to be fine, right? No. He's saying, he's emphasizing this word because he's showing really the condition of the heart that Jesus Christ himself is going to change. So all of us really are unclean at birth. All of us. It's not who sinned, this man or a parent. It's all of us are unclean. And the gospel transcends that when Christ comes and he speaks and our hearts are transformed by his message of the gospel. And this is what you're seeing take place here. So for those of us who are religious and proud and arrogant about our own accomplishments, he's like, no, it's about you realizing that you're unclean and you need Christ. So these people here began to see this and the demons even acknowledged that he was the Christ. Look at verse uh, 42 through 44. It says this. And it was the day he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for that purpose. And when he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. So Jesus... um, would often do this in his ministry. He would pour himself out and then he would remove himself and go to a desolate place. You just see this consistently. And it's very interesting too because this is, this is Jesus, this is Luke showing Jesus as God and as man. He's like, see, he has the power to heal and he needs some rest, right? See, he has the power to cleanse people from their sins and he's thirsty, Right? Or see, he has the power to sympathize for our weaknesses, and he also weeps. And John, that's the shortest verse ever, right? Jesus wept. So Luke does this thing, and, and, and John does the same thing. Like, that's the John passage when Jesus wept. We're trying to show Jesus' divinity and his humanity. That he is God, but he's also man. So Jesus here has to go to a desolate place because he is pouring himself out in ministry. And if you've ever poured yourself out in ministry, you understand this, right? On Sunday evenings, for me, uh, I'm, I'm pouring myself out uh, an eight-hour uh, a sermon. Uh, one sermon, one-hour sermon is like working an eight-hour day, all right? So you can look at the time that I preach. I have no idea. Some, some Sundays it's a lot, some it's not. So what does that look like? Well, it, it looks like an eight-hour day. And then people talk to me, which is fine. I love praying for folks, and that's what I'm here for. But on Sunday nights, I, I am a quiet person, all right? I'm done. 
Like, I, I want to go play Call of Duty and blow things up and not talk to anybody. That's what I do, all right? I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just saying. Like, I'm just a weakness, all right? And so Jess knows, like, that's download time. Ben needs to stop and just do his own thing and kind of just be quiet. Um, and so that's what I do on a Sunday after Sunday evening when I get home. I'm kind of just down, not, not down the dumps. I'm happy about what God do, has done. But I just want to not talk to people for a while, all right? And then there's times where I need a vacation. Like for a week and a half, I go, and that means don't call me, by the way, um, or I'll kill you. And so, um, and so that was a week and a half, and I got, and I was in a desolate place. I was away. I could pull myself away. And that's me. Like if I'm around people a lot, I'm, a, I'm an introverted person. So if I'm around people a lot, I need that time to kind of go in my office, shut the door, pray, read, um, listen to music. And um, that, that's what I need. And that's a download time. I can't take advantage of that. I can't overdo that or I become uh, depressed or I kind of rely on that too much. And so some of you probably need to do that. In your life, if you're kind of one of these people that is always on the go, on the run, if you're pouring yourself out in ministry, you need a time where you rest. Jesus Christ Himself was a perfect, sinless man, and He also got rest. So it's important. It's important. Now, I will say this for those of you who don't do anything, you don't need to rest. You need to get saved, all right? I'm just going to be honest. So don't tell me to pray for you because you need rest. I'll pray for that a dog chases you, but I will not pray that you get rest, right? So if you're pouring yourself out in ministry, you absolutely need rest. And so Jesus pours himself out in ministry. He, he's trying to get rest, and people are still coming to him. And he's like, listen, I, I've got to go somewhere else, and I've got to preach the good news. This is what this thing is all about. It's about preaching the good news. And, I, and that's a very important thing when we try to marry the two things of mission and message together. Jesus' intention has always, always, always been about preaching the good news. He could have easily set up a healing ministry and made it all about healing. He could have easily set up a prayer meeting, uh, prayer service and made everything about prayer. Or he could easily have, have set up a, a food kitchen and everyone come. And that would be a really easy gig, right? He can take a lunch pack and feed 5,000 people. He could easily had made this thing happen, but he didn't. He didn't. Every single thing that Christ did, his healings, his miracles, when he fed people, was for one reason, so that he could preach the good news of the gospel. That is, he said, that is why I was sent. The good news of the gospel. And so, this is why we at Integrity Church um, everything that we want to do as a church body is to proclaim the good news. So when we go and we serve um, downtown, or we, when we went to the Zoe Restoration House and through Project Outcry, and we went out there and we all got sweaty together, it's so that we can proclaim the good news. When we go and we serve those who are poor and those who are in need, our life group just did that recently with a lady who was in need. And we did that so that we can proclaim the good news. If it's not about that, it's just useless activity that in the end ends in our own pride. So Christ is showing us a model really to look at and saying everything that Christ was to do was so that he could proclaim the good news. All right. He comes to the sick, he comes to the broken, he proclaims the good news. 
Hearts are changed. Let's go to chapter 5. It says this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him. See this? He's, he's like the popular preacher now. To hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and they were washing their nets. Getting in to, to one of the boats, which is Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep and, and let, your, let, let down your nets for the catch. And Simon said, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. Now I want you to see what's happening here because it's very important. Have you ever been in a place where you are... You know how to do something really well and, you've, and someone's coming to help you and they're really not going to be much of a help, right? Like some of you married people got that. Like some of you like wives are maybe doing laundry and your husband comes up and tries to fold a shirt and you're like, nah, get out of here, right? And, and so this is, this is kind of how it is here in, in the text. Jesus is like walking on deadliest catch and he's trying to help these people fish. And they're like, okay, you know, you're really good at teaching. You're, you know, a, a teacher. Let's, you need to stick to that. We're fishermen. I think we know what we're doing here, right? Like when we were trying to set up um, for this, uh, for all this stuff, we, we, there's a lot of handy kind of, you know, tools and drills and nails and things that go into that. And so anytime like Brock or Matt, those are more real handy guys in our church. Anytime I try to help them, they kind of look at me like, oh, that's cute, Ben. You know, go, go read the Bible. Get out of here, right? You know, it's like, you don't know what you're doing, right? And, and this is what's happening here in the text. Jesus is walking up to these men who are professional fishermen. And he's like, let me get the net, look, throw it in, and we'll see what happens. And they're like, Jesus, we've been doing this all night. We've, we've caught a couple of minnows, and that's it, right? There's really nothing here we can do. And, and so what happens? Something very profound happens. Because they're going, he's just a teacher. He's not supposed to be a fisherman. But what happens? Verse 5 uh, says this. He says, Master, we have told all night, and took nothing, but at your, what's the word? Word. I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their parents in the other boat, uh, the partners rather, in the other boat, <laughs> to come and help. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' Jesus' knees, saying, "Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." What you have here is the Word of God again. His moving a heart like Simon Peter's. He says, "At your word, I will do this." And I, I love that because it, it it seems that the Word of God is pretty essential in Scripture. Can we agree with that? I mean, it seems like throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, the Word of God is primary. It, it, it moves things, it creates things, it changes hearts. It's so interesting to me, even when I meet people in the community, they're like, oh, integrity, that's the church that's really serious about the Word. And that's encouraging, but it's also discouraging because I go, there are churches that are not. Like, isn't that what we're supposed to be about, the Word? Because it seems like that's what, are you guys with me? 
Isn't that what we're supposed to be about, the word, right? And so Jesus Christ himself is about the word. He's proclaiming, he's preaching, people's lives are being changed, people are following him radically, and they're saying, at your word, I will do this. And then we see this beautiful response from Peter. When, when he is uh, confronted with the word of God, this is how he responds. This is the mark of a true believer in Christ when they're confronted by the word of God. He says this, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He acknowledges immediately when he sees the awesome power of Christ, the holiness that Jesus Christ offers. This is a man who can do all of these things, and he begins to see the gospel come to life. It's very interesting, even, even in chapter 4, who were the people, who were the ones who acknowledged that he was God? It was the demons. When they heard the truth and when they saw Christ, what did they see? They saw his holiness. And when they saw his holiness, they knew that his holiness ended in their own destruction. But when Peter saw his holiness, Peter recognized his own sinful heart. He knew that he could not even stand in the presence of a holy God. John Calvin, reflecting on um, the reaction of the Old Testament saints to the appearance of God's holiness. This is a great quote that I thought he said. He said that men uniformly were filled with dread and terror when they saw the holiness of God. If you think back in Isaiah 6, it's one of my favorite passages on worship when they saw, when when Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne high and lifted up, what did he say? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm I'm in the middle of uh, people who who have unclean lips and He responded with this great humility and awe of the holiness of God. And what happens here is when you see Luke, when you see guys like Isaiah, when they discover who God was, they also discover who they are. That they're unclean and they're sinners and they need this Savior. So something else happens very interesting in the text. I'm going to show you this in verse 9. It says, and, and he and we're all with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that he had taken. And so also were John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simeon. And Jesus said to uh, Simon, rather, to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Something really strange here happens. Jesus Christ is known consistently throughout Scripture as rabbi. Um, you see uh, Nicodemus calling him that. You see uh, Judas even calls him that. Um, he's known as teacher. Uh, others, Lord, absolutely, but he's also called teacher. And this is a very unique way that Jesus goes about getting his disciples. Because what would typically happen um, when a rabbi would, would pick his disciples, it was not at all like this. What would typically happen was they would go after the elite young men that had learned and memorized 
the law. This is a grueling process. And so really only the best and the brightest would become a follower of a rabbi. The best and the brightest. And that used to be Home Depot's slogan, by the way, when they would hire people. I used to work for Home Depot. And they would say, we choose the best and the brightest. And it was to encourage us that work there. And when I looked around, I was like, this is the best. I mean, we're in trouble. But, um, but this is what would happen. This is how a rabbi would choose his disciples. He would say, okay, this person memorized this. This person performed this well. They were able to obey this way. These were the good guys. These were the elite. These were the sharpest tools in the shed. And so if you were not chosen by a rabbi to be, a, to be his follower, to be his disciple, what would happen? You would end up doing your father's trade. You would end up being a carpenter. You would end up being a fisherman. So if Jesus is going to his disciples who are fishermen, what does that tell you about his disciples? That they're not the sharpest tools in the drawer, right? I mean, if this is a fantasy football draft, he's picking the worst picks, right? He's picking Randy Moss as his receiver, all right? He's got a Vince Young in there, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, he doesn't, uh, for those of you who don't, those are football players, and they're not that good. Um, <laughs> Randy Moss used to be, but he's, yeah. Um, so you have him picking really the lowest picks possible to be his own disciples. And so it's very interesting here because Jesus will pick a guy like Peter who really has no courage at all who's really a coward. He denies him multiple times before he's crucified. Remember that? And then he, in the, in, in the early church, he's like this profound preacher, and all these people get saved. So he's able to change even the, the person's name. His name is Simon. He's like, no, I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to give you a WWF name, call you The Rock, right? That's going to be your new name. You're going to have a new identity. You're going to have a new, you're going to act and look different. So he picks his disciples in such a way to show us the transforming uh, look of the gospel. Jesus picked the worst. Jesus goes after the unclean. Jesus goes after the unpopular. Jesus come, goes after the, the unordinary, right? This is who he goes after. So it's very interesting that in the midst of Jesus coming in and confronting the world with his holiness is when the disciples are chosen, it's right in the midst of him proclaiming the good news and right in the midst of us seeing his holiness. And I want to show you that the only reaction to when we see the holiness of God, the only reaction to when we're confronted by the gospel is to become a full-blown disciple of Christ. That's the only reaction. And see, this is where I struggle so much with this culture being the South is we think that we can become a Christian by praying a prayer or doing a certain ritual and it makes no transforming effect. I've even heard people say, well, they're saved, but they're not a disciple. No, that is not how that happens. You, when you are confronted with the holiness of God and the beauty of the gospel, you will become a disciple. 
You will grow because the Spirit of God comes into your heart and He will allow you to grow and want to know Him and want to be an all-mission disciple maker. You want to make more disciples? That is the mission and that is the gospel. I struggle with this so much. Anybody else struggle with this? I mean, it angers me to say that you can become a believer and not be a disciple. That is not how it happens. He comes to the unclean, and he makes them clean. He comes to the, he comes to the, um, to the low lives, and he makes them someone that matters. It, this is the gospel. It's transforming effect. So, if you've seen yourself as unclean, and you see the power of transforming effect of the gospel, you will be humbled. You will be broken. You will, the only response is to look at a compassionate, loving Savior and to give your life to Him. And that is what I want so much from this church. For us to grasp the beauty of the gospel, the transforming effect of the gospel, and that our desire would, from that will be to make disciples. And I can't promise you we'll, we'll always have this space. I can't promise that. I can't promise you that we'll have, you know, it, it, here's the thing. Here's the way I see it. If we grow past this number and we don't make disciples, we're wasting our time. If we grow one more person and that person becomes a disciple, that to me is a success. I want to see this group grow by making disciples. We can put on a nice Worship guys can come up and we can play. We have cool videos and cool stuff. We have a cool new space with air conditioning. That's really great. And we can have all that. But if we're not making disciples, we're wasting our time. If we're not proclaiming the good news of Jesus regularly and we're known as proclaiming the good news of Jesus regularly, we're wasting our time. So what I want to see is all of us to have the passion of Christ We're all about preaching the good news to those who are hurting and broken. We're all about making disciples of him. Let's pray.